in active shooter events, one day, whether it's of your own doing or somebody else's, you're going to end up inheriting a cluster. Wouldn't it be nice to know how to fix it? That's today's topic. Stick around. Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey. Seated next to me is Ron Ottobacker. Across from him, Pete Kelting, and we've got Adam Penley all in the house. Uh, the uh, All of us uh, instructors uh, as part of the cadre. Welcome, guys. Thank you for coming back in. Yes, sir. Thanks so today's me. topic, which ought to be kind of interesting, I want to go through the checklist and at each phase of this kind of talk about the things that we've seen that tend to go wrong and give some tips on how to recover from that, how to get back on track. You know, we always say it in the coaching, you know, we'll let people make mistakes, but we're going to get you out of the weeds. And teaching, you know, sometimes knowing how to get out of the weeds is almost as important as knowing how not to get in the weeds to begin with. So I want to make sure that we're covering those ideas on how to get out of the weeds when things go wrong. So let's start off with the first arriving officer. Um, what are the things that you see go wrong consistently with the first arriving officer and their duties, which, by the way, are uh, for the audience, size up report, identify the hot zone, establish command. They're going to be contact one on the radio and then engage. What are the things that we commonly see go wrong with the first arriving officer duties? I think the most prevalent thing is they refuse or they forget to give a size up and identify danger zone. Everyone else is responding to it. There's only one person knows what's going on. Everyone else is guessing. And if you don't give that important critical information, then engage the bad guy. Then no one else knows what they're getting into. Everyone else is guessing. And by that, it may precipitate a bad response from everyone else. You know, those are the two of the most critical things we do in this whole situation is give a size up and identify danger zone. We know that the majority of officers injured in active shooter events or injured approaching the building, if a proper size up had been given, then and the identified danger zone had been put out, could that have stopped a lot of those? It's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, realizing they're in command, you know, just to what Ron's saying is that, you know, they're, they're the closest to the problem at the, at the point in time, and they need to, to evaluate that and, and push that tactical situational awareness up to, you know, when tactical sets up, when uh, even in relaying that to dispatch as they're responding, getting that information out so better decisions can be made on following officers. You're in charge, take charge. Right. Mm -hmm. Adam? Uh, and and to that point, one of the most important things is to also train to that. We do a lot of tactical training on how to approach and, and get in the door and start addressing the threat, but we sometimes forget to make those officers also talk while they're responding, right? And it and it can be done, right? Um, clearly, if you have to uh, utilize your weapon at a moment, you're going to talk afterwards. Um, but if you're moving and talking and then addressing the threat, um, that's one way to fix it. And the second way to fix it is um, if you can tell as, you know, especially if you're in a supervisory position, you can tell that first, second, third officer who have formed up contact team one, they might have a little bit of tunnel vision. You may have to get on the radio and say, everyone else be quiet, give us an update and prompt them to give you an update because you've got to have that information if you're going to manage everyone else that's on the way. I think one of the other ways that I want to make sure we mention on this one, because we've seen it so many times, when you get a good comm center, a good dispatcher engaged, 
they they need to know it's okay for them to prompt this stuff. Mm-hmm. That that's one of the reasons we include dispatchers in training is because they need to learn it too. If your first arriving officer gets there and he says on scene and that's all he or she says, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And dispatch should immediately go back and say, need a size up report. And if you've got to walk them through it, walk them through it. Like you said, Adam, you know, it may take the supervisor, but if the dispatcher can grab that immediately at the end of their transmission, we may be able, before they even really are even out of the car uh, or up on their weapons platform, and they may be able to get them to give us a little bit, a little bit more information. Right. Um, anything, any other tips on? I think uh, recognizing the request additional resources. I mean, having that situational awareness downrange and, and realizing what you need to, you know, call for follow-on officers to assist you. Right. And at that moment, like you mentioned, you're in command essentially. So not only do you have to request additional resources, but you're the one telling them what to do. So that second, fourth uh, arriving officer, you need to tell them where to go, how to link up, what you need them to do. So that's a perfect transition. So next up on the list is the second, third, fourth arriving officer. We want them generally speaking to all link up with that first arriving officer and become that full uh, full strength contact team. Uh, you're you, by the numbers. We want the second, third, and fourth officer to reach out to contact one that first officer and find out what he or she wants you to do, which is generally going to be move to my location at X Y Z and uh, you know and link up with me. If that first officer fell down on the job. No matter the fact that we prompt them, we didn't get a size-up report, we don't know where they are, we don't know what they're doing, what happens with the second, third, and fourth officer? What what do they do to step in and plug that gap? They should be asking for contact one, what's their location, how, how can I link up with you? Because they shouldn't do it unless he knows. Again, that creates a blue-on-blue situation. Mm-hmm. If they don't know, if contact one doesn't know that other team members are coming, you don't just want to approach. You want to make sure you've got verbal communication that we're coming up to you. You know, where exactly are you if they don't know exactly where they are? But they also need to know that we know exactly where you are. We're coming to you now. Do you copy? And, and if possible, the second, third, fourth arriving officers, at a minimum, maybe they can at least stay together and work right. together and go find the one who's off by themselves. So my advice would be don't make the situation worse by now all three or four of you freelancing. Right. Um, the, the worst thing that could happen is if all four officers go off and do their own own thing. Uh, there may be time delays, so one officer may have to make a solo entry because they're the ones there. They have to address that crisis. Uh, but second, third, and fourth, as they come in, it, they should start like an accordion. They should start coming together, um, and and don't make it worse by doing your own thing also. And Pete, limit radio traffic. I mean, only, only convey what is important at the time, especially in the early onset of an event. Uh, as Contact teams link up, you know, put somebody in charge of, of those radio trim, transmissions for those uh, those teams instead of everybody trying to, to chime in on what's going on. So, And I, I think the one tip I would add is if, if you're the second, third, fourth arriving and you're going to be part of that contact team and for whatever reason, the person that you were expecting to communicate just isn't, they've vapor locked and, you know, they're, they're tunnel visioned out or they're engaged in something else, then pick up the slack. You know what the duties are. If no size-up report has been done, give one. If a hot zone has not been established, designate one. Uh, you know, initiate, pick up that slack, uh, what we call a cross-check. If it got missed by the guy and gal in front of you, fill in the gap. Right, right. and Adam talked about training. Uh, uh, many times, you know, you always hear me say is, you know, train the next level up, right? So the contact teams need need to know what information is going to make 
tactical success, successful, and so forth. The, the response that's above them. Which is a perfect segue over to our fifth arriving officer that uh, will become tactical. So now in this particular case, uh, the 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 play here, if you will, the the team, the, the football play is that the first four officers go down range and then that fifth arriving officer is not going to go down range. They're going to set up a position outside and begin to coordinate all of the other arriving officers. In other words, we're going to sacrifice one to make sure that the rest of our resources get put on the task and purpose that we need and coordinate the response. And the first thing that we see that happens with frequency is that the fifth officer goes in, then the sixth officer goes in, then the seventh officer goes in, and the next thing you know, you're eight, nine, ten in the stack. How do we get back on track? Uh, well, again, I think when when everyone trains to the model, right? So, you know, we a lot of times we get pushback, like, hey, in the real world, that wouldn't happen. All 10 of us would go in, that sort of thing. That's how we do it in the real world. The reality is you should train to, to how it should be done. And there's a lot of ideal reasons why basically the, you know, the exact fifth officer should stay put and allow the other four to go in first because more resources are coming. So you're, you are sacrificing maybe one additional gun inside in order to manage everyone else. And I say it all the time, one more gun inside might not do nearly as much good as giving a strategy and some tactical direction to the 15 more guns that are on their way, right? So um, so getting somebody to understand that. But the way you fix it is if you are the seventh, eighth, ninth officer, and you realize that everyone else in their exuberance has has made it into the site, and we all want to be, you know, we always always want to be that one inside. But if you realize that there's already seven or eight inside, go ahead and fix it then, right? Even if you're not exactly the fifth officer, you might have been the ninth or tenth on scene, but you know that a tactical group supervisor needs to be established. You're going to stay put and do that job. I think our check checklist uh, affects behavior. I think, and you know, again, back to the training aspect of it, if you train to the checklist, you know that it's important that control has to be, I mean, command has to be established. Uh, yeah, quite often we have taken these checklists and looked at after action reports of previous events and can clearly see where, you know, the, the challenges of that particular event for those agencies, you know, we feel our checklist would have significantly helped change that behavior and, and moved a better direction on, on command and control of that event. Ron, how about you? You got your, your, I, your number eight, number nine, number 10 in the stack. Recognition first. You recognize your number nine, number 10, no one's taking responsibility. You have to step up and take responsibility. Then immediately the next thing you need to do is get a brief so you know where everyone's at, you know, because now you're sending in the next 10 people to assist everyone else. But if you don't know what's going on, how can you safely send them in? How can you work with, you know, all the resources that are already downrange, that already passed up the opportunity that we had to set it up right initially? So you got to get a brief and then you've got to request the additional resources and you set your staging area. So you don't, by setting staging, you try to preclude everyone responding to the scene and you get them to set up and then you can request them. I need two more four man teams to come up, meet me here and I'll give you your assignment or link up with contact two and three because I got my brief. I now understand there are two and three contact teams downrange and figure out what their responsibilities should be from there. Right. I, I think what I would, in following on to Adam's comment, is if we, if we train, a, you know, and I think both of you said this, train to the plan, 
train to the plan. You know, it, you're, you're a football team. The coach has a new play. He wants the team to play. The team's going to run the play and they're not going to run it right the first time. And the coach is going to make them run it again. And they're going to run it again and run it again. The coach wants to see them run that play correctly the first time. And I think that's the first play to start is to make sure that everybody knows what the expectations are. I think the other thing, again, going back to the comm center, the comm center knows how many people have arrived on scene. They're sitting there watching the CAD, whether they're calling out on the radio arrival or whether they're punching the little button on the computer that says that they've arrived on scene. The comm center sees that. So they can say, you know, uh, 118, you're fifth arriving. You know, 122, you're the sixth arriving. You're the seventh arriving, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, you know, Char- Charlie Mary three, uh, you are the number ninth, uh, arriving and we don't have a fifth man. Right. Uh, we, we can, we could call that out. Uh, the supervisors can call that out. I think Ron, right to your point of getting a briefing is, is a very next thing that needs to happen. So if you're taking that role, you got to get a briefing from somebody inside. And then the, the, the thing that I would say is if you've only, if you've got four or five down range, you can keep them in a single contact team. But if you've got six, seven, eight, nine people down range, you need to split them into two right. different teams mm-hmm. and get them organized. Two or three. Yeah. Two yeah. or three different teams and get them organized. And if you don't do that very quickly, right when you take over, that will um, just snowball on you in making it that much more difficult to control uh, as you as you go down range. So I think those would be my tips. What other tips for recovering from that when your your tactical is getting stood up late? Um, I, well, again, you mentioned it earlier, the idea of cross-checking. So let's say by virtue of your rank, you're the first arriving supervisor. Um, and because of your rank, you know you're not necessarily going to be the ones to go inside because you've already got officers inside, right? Um, cross-checking, who is tactical? Uh, tactical, identify yourself. Oh, I don't have a tactical? Let me assign you. No, you stop. You are going to be tactical. Get down there and start controlling this thing, right? So if you're going to ultimately be command and you haven't had a tactical stuff yet, fix it at that point. You know, cross-check, yeah. cross-check what's on the checklist. Or vice versa, you say, okay, I was expecting to be command, but we missed tactical for whatever reason. I'm going to plug that hole and right. somebody else is going to have to kick command sure. for me. Pete, what are the things that, you know, somebody's late getting tactical stood up? What are the the tips that you give them to get back on track? Yeah, I mean, all the same things we're talking about here is, is you know, you have, especially by rank, you know, you have folks that uh, excel well in those positions. They train well in those positions. You know that, hey, I need, you might already been committed down range, but I need you to back out, set up tactical, you know, um, or put some, you know, who's responding. Especially if you're like a watch commander or something like that, that is listening to it. Uh, you just, you got to get it in place. It has to be like when you said split up the, the contact teams, immediately as soon as you split up in the three contact teams, they need a boss. You know, everybody has a boss. We talk about that in the class. Somebody needs to to wrap their arms around that tactical direction. So, well, also, I mean, I think I know we're gonna probably gonna move on to another area here, but it's really important to understand that this is over convergence. People think that more officers is good; it'll solve the problems faster. It's not necessarily the case. We have read time and time again, and some of us have experienced time and time again that over convergence will actually slow you down yeah. because you've got yes. too many people trying to do one task um, and there's other tasks that need to get done. So emphasizing the fact that it, that you have to get this structure in place in order to get back on track and start making some things happen faster. And I really like your point that, hey, even if you did have 12 officers inside, somebody at Tactical can say, okay, you four, I need you to be contact team one, contact team two, contact team three, and here's how we're going to divide this thing up. You know, We're going to start applying some strategy to – 
to circling where we know the threat's at, holding an area, containing an area, securing a casualty collection point. I mean, again, there's just the list goes on and on. There's so many jobs that need to get done. The fear is if if you take those teams and you don't divide them, now, in fact, you have 12 different contact teams because they're all going in different directions. And everybody's right. asking who's in charge. Yep. And, they, and they will. Then they'll all right. be talking on the radio. Yep. And by the way, you don't necessarily need to get the roll call of units that are downrange from dispatch and individually assign them. I mean, you could do that if you've got that level of situational awareness. But if you've got contact with one person inside, you can say them, contact one, you have, you know, uh, eight, nine people downrange, whatever the contact one, get your people organized into two teams. I want to contact one and a contact two. have contact two. call me back as soon as that's done and, and delegate it, mm-hmm. let them sort it out, right, right. you know, based on, on what's going on. So one of the tasks of tactical very early on, after they get their briefing, they take charge and they get those contact teams organized is to set a staging location, pick a location for staging. And this how I I don't know how it gets missed, but not that often. Would you say that the tactical is missing setting a staging location? What what's the? It, it can become a, a yeah a little bit of a forgotten thought when you're when you're focused on the threat happening downrange right. and still pushing people down to to support. Um, obviously, we always say you know the fire response coming to an active shooter event, they're immediately looking for a staging area. Sure. Um, so we, we quite often in the class talk about how important it is for communications to talk between each other. You know, where would the fire set up staging? And then is that tactical mindset to set up in the same area? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's key. It's important because that affects all your ability to build out RTS downrange, uh, credential, what type of resources are coming to you. So it's, it's huge. I think a couple of the tips that I would say here is, number one, going back to dispatch again, Dispatch is sitting in a controlled comm center. They should have the checklist up in front of them. And if tactical has done this stuff and they didn't call out a staging location, prompt them. Dispatch to tactical, can you, you know, give me the staging location. What staging location did you want to use? I've even seen some dispatchers be coy about it and go, uh, I, I, I didn't copy what, where you wanted everybody staged. Mm-hmm. You know, saying like it was, you know, I missed the call, even though we all know they didn't make the call. So that's one that a, a prompt that can be done. The other thing that I think can occur, depending on the timing of how it unfolds, fire may already be in the area. Right. They may have set up a staging location. I'd be inclined to ask point. where yeah, their staging area You could is. pump this to fire. Right. You could say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tactical to dispatch, find out where fire has set up staging and then announce that as the staging location for all responding units. Absolutely. And that's another piece that gets missed is we set a staging location, but we fail to update all of the responding units that they're supposed to respond to this new location. That's a gap. Absolutely. And, you know, again, that's something at kind of the next level up in the checklist, maybe that, again, if you if you know that a staging area hasn't been set, make sure you get it set and assign a manager. You know, the supervisor typically will be the one to assign a manager to the staging location. Well, if it hasn't even been set yet, go ahead and set it and assign a manager. And the number one thing that has to be fixed to get back on track is that police, fire, and EMS are in the same staging location without getting your little feelings hurt. Um, yes. If um, and, and oftentimes, and I think we're saying it, um, oftentimes it may be easier for the police to go where the fire trucks are because it's easier for us to move to them than it is for them to start all over again and try to move to us. So the 
the big thing, the early fifth man setting a staging location is a, is about slowing down that overconvergence. The next level up, the supervisor management of staging, assigning a staging manager is about getting the right resources together and, and then deploying together like they're supposed to. And, and again, I, I, I want to stomp it again. Do not get your little feelings hurt about who should have set up the staging. Just get it in the same location because there's, there's so many jobs that need to be done. And I, at that same time, when you've identified your staging manager, that's the opportune time to tell him, this is the level of resource I want you to keep in staging. That way it never comes back to staging call and command. I need to order more. Well, order them, right. you know. But if you had set it up initially when you set up your staging, you said, I want you to keep 20 cops, five engines, and five rescue trucks in staging at all times, you never have to worry about it again. And that's the opportune time to do it. Right. Absolutely. And as we transition here, talking about the first supervisor duties, I, I agree with you. I think one of the common things is the first supervisor will get on scene, take command, and for whatever reason, staging, it either wasn't set, it wasn't clearly communicated, fire didn't hear it, dispatch didn't relay it. You know, there's a there's a problem with what has or hasn't been done with staging. So put somebody in charge of it and fix it, fix the problem. Uh, we put uh, somebody from fire, somebody from law, uh, in charge of it. If you happen to be in a community where your ambulance service is separate from your fire department, you need somebody from EMS as well. So you may need two or three, basically every radio channel you're working, you're going to need a staging manager for. So put them in charge, get it designated and get it up and running, clarify what you want them to do. Uh, the, the, give them the authorization to maintain those minimum number of units. And then for the ones that overconverged and went down range. Mm. You know, if, if you're at the scene, have a face-to-face -face with tactical, get assigned into contact team and right. report back. Absolutely. That's, that's one way to fix those that have already overconverged. And, you know, a lot of times we, we talk in, in, in real world wise, you have the first contact team that comes in that, and we talked about it earlier, next three or four officers, they, they come in and they form up contact team too. Nobody's done tactical yet, but if that happens and that you know, the person did say, okay, I'm going to stay put and be tactical. That's just part of that initial briefing. Now we have two teams now. Okay, great. It should have been the fifth man, but we have two teams. Great. Same thing from staging. If staging determines that some other, some people had bypassed staging and went on down, then just account for them and make sure they get assigned to something. But the other thing that you brought up, Bill, I think is really important is that once command has set staging and we do have enough resources on scene and other jobs are going to need to get done, you may have to have somebody with that command presence with the proper rank to say out loud, command to all follow-on units, do not come to my scene without going through staging. Dispatch, repeat that message. Um, and, and, yes. and really, that's an opportune time to get back on track is you've had a little initial chaos. You're going to. It's always going to happen. A little chaos of everyone wanting to get inside. But now you've got tactical. Now you've got a command presence. Stop. Everybody go to staging. Start getting RTFs ready. Start thinking about perimeter. Start thinking about the other jobs that need to get done. You know, it's funny you mentioned perimeter. I was just thinking, is it is it wrong to tell the perimeter guys, send everybody to staging, and if they don't go, shoot them? That's wrong. That's bad, right? <laughs> you, might, you might end up with more patience that way. I'm not sure. So, um, but. so when it, when it, uh, when it, let's talk, to, talk about staging for a minute and some of the challenges that we see there that tend to uh, go wrong and need to be put on, put on track. So I think a lot of people think staging is just a matter of, of writing somebody's name down on a piece of paper and saying they're there. And it's much more 
than that, right? We all know in staging, if we if we get behind early on credentializing what resources are coming in, you know, either single incident or multi-jurisdictional incident, uh, it's huge at staging to make sure that we're ready to go. That staging manager is is putting together teams upon request, sending them out, giving them a boss, giving them a radio channel, staying organized. I think what we're talking about here is how do we get back on track? One of the things is stay organized from the get-go. You know, follow the checklist. Um, and, you know, as soon as you get unorganized clutter in your your incident, then you're off track and it's hard to recover. But the staging manager in that area is is in control of all those resources before they get sent out. They can cross check. They can double, yeah, you know, absolutely. make sure that that request was valid and where they're going and send them to the right right place and make sure they come back and close the circle, uh, you know, of communication of what that task involved and uh, produced. Yeah, agreed. The The staging manager, so the law enforcement and the fire EMS staging manager work as a pair and, and have to work as a pair to do their teams. You know, you get a request for a rescue task force. Well, in a perfect world under the model, that request should be flowing through triage and triage should be calling staging on the fire EMS channel and saying, I need a rescue task force. In which case, the fire staging manager turns to the law enforcement staging manager and says, I need, you know, I need two cops or I need three cops or whatever the number is that your community uses. And he's going to say, okay, we're going to use 118 and 123. And you turn around and you shout out engine three, 118, 123, come here. Okay, you guys are going to be RTF1. You've been asked to go to this location. You're reporting to triage and you're operating on these channels. You know, law enforcement, you're talking to tactical on this channel. Uh, Fire EMS, you're talking to triage on this channel. You have any, uh, you know, go get your briefing and your equipment. Get get yourself ready to go and let me know when you're ready to deploy. One one of a large scale civil unrest uh, events here in, in Central Florida, I was privy to watch the staging area take place. And one of the, the best things that took that happened was is they set up uh, picnic tables right next to where you were checking in. They had portalettes right there. They had water. They had everything right there. And when you checked in representing your agency, that staging manager said, we have one, one representative from your agency staying here at the picnic table the entire time, never leaves. And they're in track make sure that they have somebody to be able to face-to-face get that resource deployed and it worked extremely well which brings me to the other thing i wanted to mention about staging before we leave that topic is interoperability on radio Mm -hmm. channels so some jurisdictions are quite large and it's all going to be them that's the exception not the rule in most cases you're going to have other jurisdictions and they're going to be operating on a different channel whether it's a different radio system or not is almost irrelevant the easiest, fastest way to solve interoperability problems is in staging. You know, Pete, do you have this channel? No. Adam, do you have this channel? No. Ron, you got this channel? Yes. Okay, the three of you are going to be contact team three. Ron, you're the one on the radio. You're the only one that's got the channel. You're going to this location, reporting to tactical. Right. Go. Absolutely. And the problem is solved. Not everybody on the team needs to have a radio to hear that. Just one of them does. And by mixing up the resources, you can... You can manage that. So that's one of the one of the things that I see go horribly wrong in staging with some frequency is we get wrapped around the axle about, oh no, you've got this bank and it's this group and it's this oh God. So keep it simple. Yeah. And just real quick, three more quick things on staging. Um the the first one is the idea that um 
your staging manager is also a cheerleader in the sense that people want, they want a job. So as they arrive, let them know, Hey, we're going to have a job for you. You're probably going to be on our RTF. We're probably going to need you to supplement the perimeter group, or we are going to need a fourth contact team, but stay here. I need you to, to be ready to do this. Um, you clearly have to train to staging. So having setting up a, a separate like staging training, I think could be really important. And the most important, the thing I think that we see, staging managers get overwhelmed with that you can fix really easily is get some help. If you need mm -hmm. a scribe or you're still trying to figure out who was on the scene before you got stood up, have somebody sit down with the CAD system separately and start scribing out, looking through the CAD, figure out where everybody went based on the dispatcher's notes. So you can fix some of that early over convergence by getting some help, having a couple assistant staging managers that are helping you get caught up in a scribe. So, and I, I want to point this one out because I think the scribe thing applies to everybody in all positions. If you cannot handle the radio, talking to someone and doing your job, you're overloaded. Get somebody to help you and divvy it off. Hand your radio to somebody else. Let them talk on the radio to you. Um, put somebody else in charge of keeping your notes on the whiteboard. Whatever you've got to do, delegate some of those roles out. It's a simple overload that happens at all levels. Organizing parking and staging. Again, that same uh, staging operation I was watching, they had probably five, six folks making sure, you know, vehicles were coming in, parked the right way, they can get in and out. I mean, it was, it was I want to say 15, 20 folks working that staging area. Yep. The other thing goes back to recognition. If you're in a command level, I don't care which position it is, and you have to keep calling someone and they don't answer, now you recognize from your position this person is overwhelmed. If they don't call for assistance, you send them assistance anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are all, it's kind of hard to do with the contact teams because you may just have to say, someone grab him and tell him grab the radio for a second, yeah. but everything else you recognize they're not answering you. You've got important information you need, you need to get, send someone to help them. Um, and I'm going to go off on a real quick tangent, uh, Bill, but um, one thing we hear a lot of is, well, your radios don't work in the school. The radio doesn't work in the hospital. The radio is not going to work inside. So again, that's a little bit of a cluster, but there's a way to fix that. There's one of two ways to fix it. A lot of times you're your fancy 800 megahertz radios have simplex channels, car to car, that actually will work. Uh, they'll kind of cut, th they, they don't have to hit the repeater. They'll get out to tactical. But if not, be prepared to have a runner. If right. you have to have a runner that, that, can, that can go the same safe corridor that the contact team's already cleared, go in, get information, bring it back out to tactical. You might have to switch to sneaker net. But saying the radios don't work isn't a reason to throw your hands up and say you can't manage this thing. Amen to that. So uh, let's, let's talk about perimeter for a minute, and then we'll uh, move on to second supervisor duties. So perimeter, uh, some of the challenges and, and uh, uh, tribulations there. What I try to do with perimeter is, from a command perspective, is I tell staging, assign this person to run perimeter, pick his units, call me when it's done. Right. I don't, it's not my job as a command officer to set these perimeter locations. We do it all the time with, we used to, on the street, we'd take the furthest unit away, pull off the side of the road, set the perimeter. Right. It's an easy thing to do, but you just have them let you know it's completed. That way you close that communication. loop. It's done. It's off my plate. I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Often, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I, oftentimes you see that, that 
they grew up as a sergeant or lieutenant, they want to they want to call out the locations. Instead, just give them a mission. Right. So I agree with you. Assign it to somebody, but then just give them the mission. I want exit only traffic. I want only law enforcement coming inside. I want to stop everyone and get their information before they. I leave. want them to all go to staging. I want them to all go to staging. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Pete, what, what were you going to say? No, I was uh, on Adam's point. Uh, you know, setting up perimeter is a early enough is a challenge as it is. I mean, we talk about schools, how parents beat us to the scene before we get perimeter set up and, and a bet. lot of our other locations. Uh, for an example, I remember one time at an incident where we already had enough folks down range, right? And I see a motor officer come running in eager to, to get on, you know, one of the contact teams. And um, we're thinking like your best ability to help us is help traffic. on perimeter and trafficking, traffic control. So it's, you know, where are your resources best utilized? Um, obviously, if they were nearby on the initial response, they'd go in. But traffic units, people that are good at doing things like that can make that perimeter such a – get you back on track, make that perimeter such a better uh, function. I think the biggest tip on this one for me is is what, what Ron said is don't try to call out the posting positions and manage it directly. You call and get somebody put in charge of it and let them manage the numbers and the positions and then just hold them accountable. But I think the big one, and this is going to take me into the second supervisor, the big one that I see is that the first supervisor gets a little overwhelmed with what's happening downrange and they forget about getting the perimeter stood up or staffing it adequately. There, there's a gap somewhere. Trusting delegation. Yeah. And the second supervisor, one of the, you know, we talk about cross checks, you know, the second supervisor on raised on scene, he should be going through his checklist and going, okay, did you do this, 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 and this? And if not, you know, kind of revisiting this. So that's one of the ones that I see that, that isn't technically on the second supervisor's duty, but seems to happen with some frequency because the first guy or gal misses it. But it is on the second supervisor's briefing there because they get a brief. If they don't say, I've established a perimeter, then we're short. Yeah, right. You know, that's why the brief is so important. No matter which position you've got, it allows you to know what they've done and what they haven't done. And then you say, oh, they didn't do this. Let me accomplish that. Yep. So what are the big, uh, big gaps that puts the second supervisor, who's ultimately the long-term incident commander, what puts them in the weeds and how do they get out? Well, it's just that, that they run up and they start looking in the hole too, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, you've used a sport analogy a couple of times and I'll kind of extend on that. You know, you're your law enforcement branch is your offensive coordinator, right? And your and your fire EMS uh, branch director is going to be your uh, medical branch is going to be your defensive coordinator. Let's say you should think more in terms of being the head coach. Right. You can't get down in there and start trying to reinvent their wheels. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes you have is they get in and they want they don't just get a briefing. They start trying to reinvent the wheel that's already been done, and they're right. wasting time by doing that. Um, if you if you step back, take a moment to digest what they're already doing, get them back on track and then start giving direction and the other big one is stay put if you are that head coach or you're that uh, ultimate incident commander you have to stay put and start creating that that method that which they get jobs done they report back to you what's done you send a, another you know you give out another kind of job that needs to get done they get it done for you and then you create that little communication triangle within the uh, command post that i think really uh, gets everybody back on track Pete? I think kind of the reason behind sometimes why that happens is depending on who that individual is and where their comfort zone is during stress, during critical incidents. We see a lot of times that tactical 
Um, we may have a very senior road officer that really hasn't spent time doing any, any type of command level decision making. Same thing all the way up to command. Um, so train, you know, not on game day. You don't want to, you know, be wondering that on game day, but train to operate the next level up so that, you know, we're, we don't get off track if you're the person that's put in that position. And understanding what your responsibilities are. You've already taken place of the person in charge at that time. You move them down to law enforcement branch. Now you got two responsibilities. I need someone to gather intel, and I need someone here because we know we're going to have to do a press brief. So that's all your responsibilities are. While you've got that 30,000-foot view, you know that if you got a cop question, I go to law enforcement branch. I got a medical question, I go to them. So often we see the incident commander try to reach past them. And, okay, I'm, I, you need to have four more. No, it's not your job to tell them to have four more ambulances. Say, do you have the resources you need? Do you have the resources you need? Right. Okay, I'm here. Now I'm getting ready for my brief. I, I think that's a perfect segue over to medical branch. And let's talk about medical branch and talk about that that EMS stack that goes up. So obviously medical branch, once we get that first supervisor gets a command post set up, whoever the ranking officer is for fire and EMS goes to the command post, establishes a face-to-face communication and becomes the, the medical branch working for the law enforcement incident commander and then begins to stand up the fire and EMS response which at the lowest level is going to be the rescue task forces and the rescue task forces are reporting to triage parallel to that right next to them is going to be the transport group supervisor and the transport group supervisor will run all of the ambulances as they get assigned out of staging and manage all of the transports and they're reporting all of that information back to medical branch so that's our our structure. So let's talk about some of the common problems we see. Uh, and let's start at the lower level with the rescue task forces. So one of the big ones, um, start with it in staging when you get assigned, is they don't take 30 seconds to introduce themselves and get clear on who's doing what. And this is one of my biggest concerns is I think sometimes law enforcement makes some assumptions about the level of training that the fire and EMS people they're going in with them on their RTF have had. And, you know, the simple things that are common to you guys, like don't stand on the X and don't stand in a T intersection. That's a dangerous place. Well, those were terms I had never heard uh, until the very first time I went through training. And so uh, one of my concerns is it's, it, it's almost essential to take that 30 seconds in staging for the law enforcement element and the fire EMS element to have a quick conversation, introduce each other, talk about, you know, which cop is taking point, who's taking rear guard, how you're moving, what the rules of the road are, uh, what stuff are we carrying and where we're going, you know, things like that. Um, what are the other mistakes that you guys see that gets the rescue task force in the weeds? I think once the, once they get downrange, they try to do too much themselves, forgetting that they can also call for additional resources. They can delegate up to triage that hey, we need we need two more teams here, and then when those RTFs make it into the into the casualty collection point, uh, somebody taking charge and giving direction. You know, kind of um, this is a term we use loosely, but room kind boss. of a room boss, right? You know, have having that first RTF has already sized up what they have, and as new teams arrive, making sure they tell them what needs to be done next, you know? Pete, RTF uh, mistakes. I think recognizing that, you know, from a perspective of a casualty collection point, it's not going to be this, most likely not going to be this nice, clean, you know, perfect area that everybody's going to be located in. 
perfectly in the real world, which which we try to train to, right, for make it defensible and, and accessible and so forth. Just like Adam's saying is, is getting that situational awareness, you know, how many how many more rescue task force we need down there and get them going sooner than later. It comes back to training. We assume the law enforcement officers know what their responsibility is for an RTF. But how do we know that those brand new two rookies that have been put together know what an RTF is and knows what their responsibilities are? Training is so essential, whether it's in-house, whether it's with everyone from public safety working together. We've all got to have, a, have an understanding of what our responsibilities are. We can say, okay, your rear guard, your you know, lead penetrator, and you're going with the RTF. Do they even know what those responsibilities are? So we've got to we've got to understand that we've got some areas we can do better on, and we need to work on it now instead of when the incident occurs, because we make a lot of assumptions. We you know, and like they say, hope is not a plan. You know, we hope that things are going to work out that way. But if we got four people that have never been in RTF trained for that function, and they're now the RTF, what are their chances of success? You hope it's good, but We've got to understand that we've got weaknesses and we've got to address those weaknesses. Yeah, we can't forget that our number one uh, debrief topic on RTFs in class is who's in charge of them. That right. usually sends everybody sideways of, you know, is law enforcement in charge of sending the first one down versus medical at the time? And then does medical branch control, you know, how all that movement takes place? We see that derail RTF response quite often. And once the RTF gets down there, uh, I see frequently they immediately go to work and they fail to communicate with triage and what they've got. Mm -hmm. So triage is only working on the information given to them by tactical, which is based on the contact team's initial screening. And those screenings of greens and reds may have changed. included some that have plaque tags. They may have changed. The numbers may have gone up. And we need to split them into green, uh, yellow, red, and black tag and update those numbers. So the RT, first RTF through the door, the very first thing they should do is give triage a count of injured without colors. This is what I am looking at at this location right now. And then that should immediately be followed up by the numbers of reds, yellow, green, and black tags that they're dealing with that at location. The other big mistake that I see RTFs make is it's, and it's just a habit that medics today have gotten into is this is my patient. Pete, you come in, you take that patient, Ron, you get that patient over there. That's how you do it day to day, but that's not mass casualty behavior. Mass casualty behavior is we first need to figure out who's the most severe and who needs who's going to benefit from the quickest help. And so my first duty is to get everybody triaged. And, you know, Pete, when you come through the door as Rescue Task Force 2, I should be saying to you, Pete, those two over there with the chest wounds are number one. Get, you you deal with deal with those. Get on those right away. Um, and then Adam comes in with RTF3 and you say, Adam, I haven't been able to get to those people over there. Um, you know, they're, they're yellows and greens, but I didn't get a chance to reassess them. You know, start working with that, that stack over there. You know, and Ron comes through maybe as a fourth RTF and you say, Ron, I need you to get a plan together for how we're going to move these people to the ambulance exchange point. So I, 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 we've lost a little bit of that, that leadership that goes into place. But how do you recover? If you get an RTF that goes in and goes silent on you, you're triaged. They work for you. You're the boss. Call them, get a report. Right. And you got and, a law enforcement component with them. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and just to 
kind of back up a little bit, one of the other things I think we've seen in, in some actual incidents is RTFs that get they get hijacked by walking wounded. And they need to be clear about where they're going and what their mission is. Meaning if if you're sent inside of classroom number three, it's because there are seriously injured patients in there and then we need you in classroom number three. Being stopped in the hallway and 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 not making it to your assignment is is something that has to be fixed and it has to be fixed quickly. And it's the RTF's responsibility to either say, hey, we've been stopped by a serious patient out here in the hallway. We're going to stay put and we need to send somebody else or triage. What do you want us to do? We can, we have walking wounded here. Where do you want us to send them? So there needs to be a plan in place for that as well. So let's jump over to tactical, uh, I'm sorry, uh, triage and transport. Pete, you spent a lot of time uh, coaching tactical triage and transport. What's the most common things that gets triage and transport in the weeds? And what are your tips for getting out? Uh, they silo their own individual look at the incident. They they need to – that's the whole purpose. They're co-located together is to, to start working together to to digest that information and make the best decisions. Um, like you said, you know, changing triage colors and so forth, uh, movement of the RTF teams, uh, knowing that tactical talking to uh, contact teams, that contact teams aren't calling dispatch saying send me rescue in room such and such when we have an RTF component, you know, in place and moving down range. Uh, it, they've got to work together. They got to trust each other, um, update each other. Those are things that tend to get them off track if they don't if they don't pay attention to that. All right, Adam, what about you? Um, I think in this kind of RTF to the triage and then to transport is realizing that we we're going to be ready for transports pretty quickly if we're if we're starting to work our patients right. And so closing that communication loop for the RTFs to to tell triage, hey, we're in 5 minutes we're going to be ready for a transport and start working out that location. Um transport I think can help fix it by prompting triage, hey, make sure they tell us when they're ready for the transport as quickly or where they're going to go or where we're going to go so we can uh, get get the you know, we might even be able to move from staging to a little closer and then be able to come right in when the RTFs are ready. And that supports making sure your ambulance exchange points are properly set up and secured. We right. see that a lot of time in class where you it's know, delayed It's delayed, or ambulance mm-hmm. will be sent down without uh, proper security. So that, that communication yep. is huge. At yeah. the, but all Otter, three working together, I think, is the key. Okay. Mm-hmm. Otter, how about you? I think, again, broadening out a little bit is understanding – Everyone needs to paint a picture. I don't care what your responsibilities are. If you don't paint a picture on what you've done, if you're tactical, your command, anyone else, if you're contacting, everyone else is guessing. And the other thing is lines of communication. Again, the rescue task force doesn't need to be going to the dispatcher. They've got bosses. That's who they need to go to, and that's who it needs to be reinforced to is if you're downrange, you're either going to tactical or triage. And then once you're transporting, you go to go into transportation. If you understand those responsibilities and that's your lane, that should be the only place you stay. I think for me, the the most common mistake I see triage make is they get wrapped around the axle about the initial numbers and colors that they were given. And they're like, we're missing this, we're missing that. And it's just a mistake because those are always going to be moving targets. They're going to change by the nature of patients decompensating or being stabilized with some treatment. And instead, the phrase should be RTF1, what do you have left at your location? RTF2, what do you have left at your location? How many viable patients are left for transport? And on on the transport side, The biggest mistake I think I see there that gets them into real trouble is they'll send ambulance 
two up to the a to the ambulance exchange point, and they'll say you're going to pick up one red and two greens. No, don't. You have no idea what's there. You may think you know, but you don't know what's there. Let those individuals manage that. They're the ones that are there. But Ambulance 3 needs to call you back as they're departing the AEP and say, this is what I've got. I've got this many reds, this many yellows, this many greens. I need a hospital. And that's when you can kind of when you can kind of close the loop. Um, Now, let's jump up to medical branch. I think the biggest thing that I see as medical branch is they want to try to run everything from medical branch. They want to step on triage and transport and not let those guys and gals do their job. Um, and instead, they they fail to recognize the altitude at which they're at. Mm-hmm. That they're, like you said, they're the head coach mm-hmm. on the firing EMS side. They're not the offensive and defensive coaches on the firing EMS side. That's what triage and transport are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making sure that the benchmarks get hit and keeping command informed about what's going on, what the needs are, things like that. Um, you know, Adam, you've done a lot of time in the command post. What are the, what are the things that jump out of you on medical that send them sideways? Well, that, and and I think the, the big thing to understand is that it, I know you're the battalion chief. I know you're in charge, but you can't be in two places at once. You can't be downrange getting that re- right now information from tactical to make patient transport decisions. And you can't, and at the same time, also be in the command post to help the incident commander m- understand the medical mission, like uh, the the hospitals and where patients are going to be transported and what resources they need and whatnot. Your presence is needed at the command post. Make sure you get, uh, however you want to divvy it out, an engine company that, that runs both or you send two officers down there, whatever you want to do, you have to have triage and transport set up separately from medical branch. And the other thing I see in, is that they get caught up in the terminology. Uh, there's such a push on the fire EMS side that they want to call it unified command. Early on, it is a murder in progress. Law enforcement is going to be calling the shots. It's like me coming to your fire ground scene. If you've got a two-alarm structure fire and I'm a law enforcement officer, I'm not going to slow you down by being asking to be part of unified command over that structure fire. I'm going to say, hey, I'm here to do law enforcement duties. This is what I need to know. This is how I'm going to help you. It should, it should, that should work kind of both ways. So it's really, I think it's sometimes a policy or protocol issue. Sometimes it's just an ego issue. Get in there, take the medical branch assignment, support the incident as best you can. And at some point after we get the whole you know, process going, there will be a time for unified command, but don't slow things down trying to say, well, we're not going to do anything until we've established unified command. That's the number one mistake I think we see. The other thing I see from the medical branch is a lot of times they'll get there before law enforcement gets there to set the command post. Don't waste that time. You've heard what's going on. You know you got injured people. So what are you going to do first? While you're there, you call the stage, look, I want you to assign someone for triage and transport. Let me know who it is. Triage. You're there. Start working on stand up your RTFs. Once I give you the word or once you get downrange and get the word, then they're ready to deploy instead of waiting. Well, now we need RTFs and it's 20 minutes in. Now you're trying to stand them up. They should already be stood up. They should be ready to go. You should be ready to go once they establish where tactical is. And you've already gotten there a lot before everyone else. So once they, the law enforcement bosses get there, you can integrate with them and everything's already set up and ready to go. Right. Yeah, I agree. And Adam, you know, to your point, I I think we have to be respectful of the role that we play just because we're in the habit 
of being in command doesn't mean that we have to be in command. And it doesn't mean that there's a legal authority for us to be command. There's nothing wrong with unified command. It has value. It does contribute. It should be your goal to get to unified command. We call it out on the checklist that you should ultimately get to a unified command. But what we found over time is that if you try to make that your focus in the first few minutes, like you said, it does slow things down. And I, I've had fire department people tell me, you know, it's our policy that we have to have in command. We have to be in command. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm standing there trying to delicately redirect it, and I'm thinking, I really seriously doubt that that's what your policy says. Mm -hmm. And if that is what your policy actually says, that needs to be changed. Right. Because it's dead wrong. Fire EMS has been telling law enforcement for 40 years that we want you guys to use ICS and that it's this shared way of managing things. And yet when it's your turn to be in charge, we don't want to let you be in charge. I mean, it's kind of nuts from that perspective. So uh, Carla gave me the 30-minute sign about 45 minutes ago. <laughs> so um, let's get wrapped up here with, uh, you know, with just going around final thoughts. Pete, final thoughts. Yeah, we started this with, you know, your event's gone sideways, right? Or your incident's gone sideways. How do we get out of it? And you heard me talk about stay organized from the beginning. You know, Ron, we all talk about training. I was just thinking if you took our checklist and kind of split out all the, the responsibilities and, and the uh, parts of it and put a domino on each one and said, you know, did we meet all that benchmarks on that first domino? If we didn't, I'm going to push it and it's going to collapse all the rest of the dominoes. And that's where it turns into that cluster is that we're not organized. We haven't trained properly. Yep. Ron, fun The key is recognition, recognizing that it's gone sideways. And once you do, you may have to call timeout for 10 seconds to get it, to get it going back the right direction. But recognition is a key. If you don't recognize it, you can't fix it. Yep. Got him. And then the other part that can really help you is some early intelligence. So that's another in the command post assigning somebody to do that intelligence function so you can get your head wrapped around not only what happened, but why it's happening so you can get out of that fog of war as well. So that's something else that can throw your incident into chaos. But again, there's a there's a tool in the toolbox for that, getting intelligence assigned. Uh, but like everyone else has said, you know, pick up where you've left off and just cross-check and then start working from there to get back on track. And I think my final thought on this is going to be a, a tag on to to otters. And that is... You may not have know you may not know you've missed something. You may not even know you're in the weeds. You may not even recognize that this thing is clustered up on you. But if you are overwhelmed and overloaded, something is not right. right. If you delegate out these responsibilities, nobody in the stack should be overloaded. Busy? Yes. But overloaded? No. So if you're feeling overwhelmed and overloaded, get some help. And in the process of getting help, cross-checking, another mind that's coming in, whatever was not quite right is going to reveal itself. And to your point, you take the hit. If I've lost accountability, if I've got five contact teams downrange and I don't know where they are or what they're doing, you, you take the hit. As soon as you realize that's what's happening, you say, okay, all units, stand by, emergency traffic only. Contact one from tactical. Give me your location and your status. Great. Contact two from tactical, location and status. Contact three, tactical, location, status. Reset. Yes, it burns 60 seconds. But did you just save 10 minutes because you've reset 
and you've got your situational awareness back. So um, if you're feeling overwhelmed and overloaded, something's not right, get some help. And when you figure it out, take the hit and fix it. Gentlemen, thank you very much. This was obviously a good one. We probably could have split this into two parts. I, I think we had had more we could have uh, done on this. Uh, if you haven't liked or subscribed the podcast, please do so. Whether you consume wherever you consume your podcast, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, we've got uh, a lot grander plans on pushing out some more content, uh, not just the podcast. I want to say thanks to Carla Torres, our producer, as always, for doing a great job in managing these things as we record them live and, and she is switching us back and forth. Carla, thank you for what you do. And until next time, stay safe.